Welcome back to the Ink Sync. I am Annie. I'm Kaylee. This is the publishing podcast for the rest of us, where we talk about books and news and writing. And today we are talking about genre tropes. For those of you who are confused, we actually changed our format last episode. We are bringing this to you. Our main topic section is going to be on its own this week. Dun, dun. <laughs> Sorry, I'm stop. I'll stop. But also, yes, uh, we're changing things up a bit just because I think we got some feedback. You guys asked for this. That's what you wanted. You want so. us every week? This is how you're getting us. Oh my god. Stop complaining. Stop loving us so much. Ugh, you weirdos. <laughs> so, the episode this week is just going to be our main topic no news if you are interested in the news recent publishing events you can go and listen to our last episode that should be the very last one in your feed so today we are starting a brand new series on genre tropes we decided that this was something we were super interested in exploring as a it's a fun very interesting and very immersive topic in fantasy. It really is, just to be clear. And and um, just tropes in general. Tropes are, it's something that has just been written enough and formalized enough in such a way that you're able to kind of draw, not necessarily like rules, but literary similarities for the topic. And that's how it becomes a trope. That is what defines the trope. And so some of the initial topics that we're discussing are, you know, what are these fantasy tropes or what are the underpinnings for our favorite genre? Because we, we're both fantasy nerds. And so we'll, we'll start there and we may have other tropes that we discuss within fantasy, but that's kind of our initial like launch point where we'll ultimately branch out from. Yeah. So this is a brand new series. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know. Or if you have anything you want us to talk about, I will say the main feedback that you guys give us that we have just not taken yet is that you want to hear about book adaptations because that is such a broad topic. That's not even a topic, really. That's just like an idea. It's a vibe <laughs> and that's fine. We like vibing, however. Give us more specifics. Anyway, so we each decided that we're going to pick a trope within a genre and we settled on the fantasy genre. Again, as Kaylee said, we are both fantasy nerds and I chose the three witches trope and you chose the chosen one trope i believe sure did so i'm gonna start just because i'm very excited i hope you don't mind thank you i know i always love it thank you i wanted to talk about the three witches trope in fantasy so normally you'll see the three witches out there as guides or something similar. And this is, I will preface this by saying that all of my research was on the uh, Western European tradition of the three witches. Obviously the most famous case is in Macbeth, the three weird sisters in the forest telling Macbeth that he will be king, but only if. X, Y, or Z, etc., etc. Yeah. I feel like I had a slightly stronger Greek mythology phase than you did at least. (laughs) I think that the the idea or the concept of the trope appeared and was potentially subverted many times throughout mm-hmm. most of the literature that I read. Patricia C. Reed had a lot of that in her comedy series about the Forbidden Forest, which was absolutely delightful and I thoroughly recommend. They're 
very quick reads and they're just a lot of fun. One of her probably most iconic characters is Morwen, pretty sure I'm remembering the name correctly, who's a witch who is uninterested in all of that nonsense. But speaking separately of the the less modern variety to the, the myth, the Greek mythology is chock full of it because it, it's based on the fates. Specifically, you had the crone, the mother, and the maiden. In the fates, the one who held the the shears, the architect of the design, and then the one who cut the yarn, which was your life, essentially. That's been around for a very long, long time. Mm-hmm. And it, it weaves very thoroughly through Greek mythology, which, speaking of sort of ancient archetypes and tropes i picked out the the chosen one pretty much every single possible greek hero (laughs) yeah exactly was chosen in some form or fashion frequently Mm -hmm. to their detriment yeah the fates were not always kind and uh, that is the three witches are not always kind and that's what happens with, as they are very thoroughly maybe defined as a new in Macbeth, which was uh, Shakespeare's revitalization. Macbeth doesn't do great. I mean, he's not a great person. No. But also, maybe he wouldn't have done what he did if he hadn't had some very unfortunate cheerleaders along the way. Yeah, I think that that's something that I came across in my research. I do want to quickly shout out another trio the three brides of dracula oh yeah good point who are known as those weird sisters by jonathan harker also if you wanted to hear about others uh charmed obviously is one of the best oh yeah excellent uh stories of three witches uh the chilling adventures of sabrina it's all always the the two aunts and then the one younger Yep. Which there is, for those who are into Doctor Who, there is an episode called The Shakespeare Code, where Shakespeare encounters three witches. And in Legends of Tomorrow, obviously, there is a ton, Once Upon a Time, also a ton, Supernatural, I believe. Oh, yeah. They have the fates show up at some point. They have the fates. They have a variety of witches. Yeah. You guys, it was Supernatural. It was... (laughs) So many seasons. Everybody at some point showed up to the party. I have to say, so Kaylee mentioned this a little bit, that you can almost clearly draw a straight line between today's Three Witches and the Three Fates of Greek mythology. And I feel like you can say that about much of today's tropes, is that they come from either folklore or mythology as either characters or stories unto themselves. And today they are simply used as a reference or a meme in the traditional sense of the word, as a a cultural reference. So the three sisters are usually sisters or usually they know each other in some way that is beyond just like, oh, we met at a coffee shop at some point. (laughs) The farmer's market is great. Yeah. They usually know each other in a a more deep way. Maybe they're not necessarily sisters. Maybe they're bonded by some sort of spiritual thing. In Charmed, they're sisters and half-sisters. I believe in Dracula, they are simply bonded by... Their sisters and marriage, Their husband, yeah. So they are thrust into a situation together. And they are, as Kaylee said, usually not a good omen. When you see a witch in the way that, you know, seeing a witch in general is not always a good omen. But, uh, and I thought this was really interesting. I got this from a blog post on Tor.com. For those of you who don't know who, what Tor is, it's a um, 
publisher of genre fiction and this author talked about all of the ways in which you or all the places in which you see the three sisters as witches throughout literature and one of the things that they called out is that farther back in the past they were actually more akin to fates where it's kind of neutral like who lives who dies where they're going it's not personal the fates are just weaving threads a thing has to happen whether you're the the person that causes the thing to happen is right and much of mythology is about people going to the fates and saying i would like to change this and them being like oh no we don't change and it's not like a a matter of us directing anything we're just weaving threads this is just what we saw happen and we gotta we gotta do it bro sorry so for a very long time in literature these sisters as they appeared were kind of neutral sort of like a genie you know you ask for something they'd give it to you but it might not work out quite the way you wanted or frequently it didn't they would show up and tell you what happened but you misunderstood what they were saying as in Macbeth, where he totally misunderstood what they were saying and then acted on it and suffered the consequences of being wrong which was what they saw yeah moving forward after that with they kind of get into a sinister vibe so we haven't talked about this on the show before the effect of king james on literature from europe but we should one day the man was kind of out of his mind oh yeah and had far too much power and king james believed in witches and actually wrote a book about how to identify demons and to destroy them so much of the literature of that era which is the post-elizabethan era is geared towards appeasing or simply not pissing off a man who may or may not put you to the death if he disagrees with you you know what i'm saying yep so today when you get three witches they're more they're kind of back to being neutral after being sinister from like the you know 1600s today it's more back to the Macbeth style where they're they're just telling you what happens what you do with that information is up to you. They have the knowledge. How you get there. They have their own feelings about what's going on. TV Tropes actually separates this into the three sisters trope and the Hecate trope. Oh. Where in the Hecate trope, we see the mother, the maiden, and the crone. So that's, if you've read Ocean at the End of the Lane, you have the very young girl who's 11 or 12, the mother of that girl, and then the grandmother who is considered a crone and this kind of goes back to part of the arthurian legend so the hecate legends are we don't quite know where they came from but the idea is that the power of woman is the maiden the matron and the crone Uh, the power of a maiden is the seduction and the naivete the beguiling nature of innocence the appeal of the mother is the sexual appeal of the ability to essentially have sex But also to breed. The crone is wisdom. She knows things because she just has all that experience. And because she's a woman, she's kind of removed from public life in a way that men are not. And of course, there's always the kind of shaded figure in the background that is the either evil witch or some other dark aspect of this. I always love a story about the three witches just because I find it so fascinating that you're seeing them together working as a unit, but also individually. And I've always found that really fascinating. In fantasy, you often see them as advisors or 
in some other capacity as fate makers. And I love that. Kaylee, what was your trope? All right, so I kind of mentioned it before, but my trope was the chosen one. Mm-hmm. So from genuinely day one, it was mildly wish fulfillment. Although I think that back in the olden days of yore, it was also a cautionary tale. As with, you know, in the oral tradition, when people didn't have as much maybe practice or experience with writing, you know, they had to teach themselves somehow, pass knowledge along. So they would tell stories. That's what you do. Mm -hmm. Greek mythology, specifically, as far back as stories go, because also, just to be clear, Beowulf exists as well in the world and was also a chosen one. Was Beowulf a chosen one? Or was chosen just, by somebody. Was by who? I mean, sometimes people are just chosen by like there's nobody else. Mm, gotcha. And they gotta okay, move forward. I see what you're saying in the narrative as an adventurer, mm-hmm. like if I don't do this, no one will. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that there's a prophecy or that like a lady has a power or that to imbue a sword with super cool stuff and gives it to me. Sometimes it's just like there's there's nobody else to go someone has to kill the monster mm-hmm. somebody's gotta kill the monster and then Hi, somebody's somebody's gotta kill that monster's mom anyway spoilers for Beowulf. spoilers <laughs> in case you didn't know um so anyway especially nowadays especially the way that we have kind of evolved the trope of the chosen one it is 100 percent wish fulfillment so we as a culture sort of deify individualism and again, we're talking about American culture. We kind of deify individualism to a point. And as as a culture, if we feel like we personally have let down the idealized nature of whatever we are personally likeliest to embody, there's always a part of us that wants the validation or the vindication to come from somewhere. Some, some objective force to come through and say, yes, you, you did it. You figured it out. You're the one. You did it right. Because that's how we were raised. And ultimately, you're going to repeat that cycle. One of the things I love about the chosen one trope is that they are not singularly special. Like, so for example, like Luke in Star Wars, he's he's pretty cool and like pretty singular, but he's not the only Jedi. Nope. He's not the only person who has a grudge against the Empire. Sure. And I think that's awesome. I know. That's fantastic. So what what makes a chosen one? Like, what are the kind of characteristics yeah. throughout history, I suppose? Because it, it does the genuinely literature. Yeah. stretch back to the beginning of literature for our people. So you have your force that is in some fashion choosing the agent, whether that is the Hunger Games in which it is just like a lottery and then a volunteering system, or if it's a lady in a lake and a prophecy or a prophecy all of the above some some fashion in which a person or an individual becomes singled out to the narrative then you've got the problem which is identified and then typically not always frequently you have a fatal flaw you can pretty much point to any real chosen one in modern times and be like, yeah, he's got a whatever fatal flaw, X, Y, or Z. So I will kind of walk through some examples 
with my thoughts on those and then feel free to contribute so historically you've got you know obviously king arthur we had mentioned briefly and i've you know described we've described the lady in the lake yeah well king arthur was he was just a guy like there was nothing particularly special about him Mm -hmm. other than the circumstances of his birth and the fact that vivian was like he deserves a sword and he gets a sword but he doesn't get any special training and then and there are discussions as to whether the the sword from the Lady in the Lake is the same sword as Excalibur, etc., etc., which is fair. At the end of the day, Arthur was differentiated. And then his flaw in, in many opinions is that he was very trusting because he didn't get the, tr- the training. He was raised as a commoner or as a serf, essentially, in his mythology or as a potential general in the Roman army and wasn't necessarily intended to lead after a certain level. But did. He didn't know of the threats that he would need to defend against, which came from sweet talking and internal manipulations and machinations. I mean, that's just kind of where we're at from multiple sides. You had people that kind of undermined his authority personally, and then you had people that undermined his authority politically. You had, mm-hmm. you know, Lancelot versus Mordred. So those are some of the initial, like, early examples. And then you've got Jesus, apologies in general, but Jesus was clearly a chosen one by God himself. But also, you know, he had his adventures, shall we say. He was kind of demarcated by signs on earth. And was he a tragic hero? Did he have a fatal flaw? Yeah. Mercy. And turn the other cheek. Like, you can't, at some point, you know, you have to fight. And he didn't. So I obviously was not raised religious, so I maybe have a dumb question, but I thought he did have like special powers. Sort of. Like, like turning water into wine. Yeah, and... he has powers. Many of them do have powers. Arthur had a magic sword, and if he kept that sword and kept his courage, he couldn't be defeated in battle. But he couldn't always do those things as a person, you know, as a mortal person in the world. And that's what happened to him. And that's what happened to him. So uh, Jesus was very clearly a chosen one in the literature narrative of the Bible. His, again, in my opinion, fatal flaw was uh, mercy. And I think there are mm-hmm. some discussions on that topic separately. But there are non-controversial issues. People like Oedipus was chosen. <laughs> he was sure there was a prophecy and everything. It wasn't good for him. It wasn't good for his dad or his mom. Or- Everybody was unhappy about this. He didn't choose anything other. He was chosen. So, um, again, there are uh, some modern classics. You've got Lord of the Rings. You've got Star Wars, obviously. I kind of mentioned the Hunger Games, um, Narnia. That kind of really hits into play at the very end of the series, the Chronicles of Narnia, because one of the elements is the whole death aspect and pretty much die at the end and kind of do the transition. Not all of them, but most of them. Spoilers for the Chronicles of Narnia. (laughs) Sorry. So for the Lord of the Rings, which I'm not going to get into the Chronicles of Narnia, there's many characters and there's a lot of different Mm-hmm. flaws so i'm not going to really discuss that in depth um so lord of the rings frodo's i would say was more indecision than anything i i mean he also chose himself he didn't need to do that no he could have handed that he tried to someone else he tried but at the end of the day like there were a lot of things he could have done he did choose himself at the expense of the world a few times he stayed in the shire when he knew there was a critical thing happening and Mm -hmm. could have left earlier so i mean at the end of the day like his rashness i would say is in decision and then rashness in making a decision was probably his flaw because otherwise he was perfect 
genuinely did his best throughout that whole trilogy. And ultimately, he made great friends and was able to finish out things because of those good characteristics. But if he hadn't had those, he wouldn't have made it. Star Wars Anakin, uh, explicitly defined, especially via the new trilogy, as the chosen one. He was really interestingly chosen, almost in like a Jesus way. The Immaculate Conception, the prophesied baby, all of Mm -hmm. those things. And at the end of the day, two things were pretty apparent, which is that you can still fulfill your prophecy and fuck it up up until the very last moment. But also, like, people can be really confused. So for Anakin, his fatal flaw was fear. At the end, like, at the very bottom of everything, he was afraid of loss, and that made him lose everything. And... At the end of things, it was the letting go of that fear and embracing, like, Luke and whatever and the love of the future and, like, just acknowledging the fact that things would go on and that his son would be around as a person regardless of his presence, whether he could do anything to help him or not, let him pass into the the light and kind of redeem himself. That's very insightful. I think a lot of people would say that his fatal flaw was his ability to be manipulated i think it was through his fear um and then for katniss i think it was her loyalty her personal attempt to put her loved ones above everyone and i think that for the story that was being told i don't think that that particular flaw had an impact on the wider the wider world so much as it destroyed her personally at every step and i mean that every level of that particular story was designed to break the character that you as a reader were designed to emphasize with and empathize with because it was dehumanizing and that was just the way the author intended it to go so that was a, another the modern classic that i feel like at the end when spoilers so for mocking jay primrose dies She's the character that Katniss started this whole thing for, and she did so much to keep Primrose alive and safe. And at the end, it was a very senseless and inexcusable death, and there's no reason for it, and that's just war. And her flaw here is that she did all of those things and didn't keep anything back for herself, and it wasn't Mm -hmm. worth anything. And then she was, she gave it all up. Can the chosen one have a happy ending? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. Sometimes, sure. But it's a matter of luck, it feels like, a lot of the time. I want to slightly diverge because there are less depressing versions of this particular topic. Yeah. Let's end on a high note. Two things, and then I'll talk to one I feel like you personally have a huge stake in. Okay. All right. So, thing one. Yes, that counts too. Not the first Pokemon movie, but the second (laughs) Pokemon movie started a very hilarious trope of the main character being the chosen one. And like essentially what happened in this movie, the second Pokemon movie, 1999-2000, is that there is a weather phenomenon and and the main character washes up on an island that is doing like a reenactment or a play. And they ask him if he wants to be quote unquote the chosen one and he's like sure it sounds like fun 
And then Morgan Freeman came on and said, no, it was not, in fact, fun at all. Because it was a genuine prophecy. (laughs) XYZ happened. There was some asshole going around. This started a fantastic trope of this eternal, immortal 10-year-old boy being chosen for literally everything. (laughs) He couldn't throw a Pokemon ball at something and not find out that that was the Jesus of Pokemon. And he had to, like, go take it to the, I don't know, Nazareth to make sure that it could turn water into bullshit honey wine. I I got in a mead. Anyway, Pokemon, guys. That is, in fact... He is chosen, and they He's, they are still trying to figure out a way out of that hole. He They're is trying so, so chosen. hard. Like he's obnoxiously chosen. It's a very <laughs> aggressive. He doesn't, guys. At some point, they'll explain his dad, and then we'll really be fucked. Um, I don't remember what my second one was because Pokemon I didn't have it in my notes. I'm really sorry. But okay. the thing for you, okay. I knew I have that in my notes because I was like, let's talk about this. Okay. So my 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 whole thought on the chosen one and speaking of Western culture, and I mentioned this a bit earlier, is our, our kind of approach to um, individuality. Video games. I want to talk about that. RPGs specifically. Hey, Annie. Yes. In Mass Effect, uh-huh. you have a main character that sure is do. you as a person, and you have a lot, a lot of customization. But by the end of that, what has happened to your character? Oh, they are deified. You are um, chosen to do. You are chosen some things. Yeah, and it's one of the points of the series is that Shepard is just a normal person who just goes through some extraordinary circumstances. Some of them happen on screen, some of them happen off screen, and by the end, they end up choosing the fate of the galaxy Mm -hmm. so the idea of the chosen one i feel like has been more than pretty much any other literary trope embodied in our cultural phenomenon and i just think that's such a fascinating idea because rpgs are so prevalent and that's everywhere we all want to be this but it's just such a fascinating idea for the literary convention Thanks for listening. I'm Annie. I'm Kaylee. You can follow The Ink Sync on Twitter, Instagram, Bookshop, or you can email us at theinksyncpodcast at gmail.com. We do want to hear your ideas. We will see you next time. Bye. I'll follow your lead, Tim, into the fires of Mordor. As you have up till now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> In God's name, we're doing it. <laughs>